Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. So, Rachel, the Raptors just won their game today. I think we're recording about 10 minutes after the game ended. I'm feeling good going into game five, but this is not a basketball podcast, so I'll quickly switch gears and talk about what people care about. Exactly, and I'm actually going on Tuesday to game five, so I'm pretty fired up, but we're not here to talk about basketball. What are we talking about, Ian? So I'm not sure if you heard in the news today. I'm not sure if it's official yet, but Ken Holland to the Oilers seems to be a thing. And I know that the Oilers have kind of been a punchline for the last year or two, especially when it comes to jokes in Twitter, jokes in the media. There's There's been a lot said about Edmonton over the last little bit when it comes to the way that they've been running their team. And now bringing in Ken Holland, I feel like this is bringing up the discussion again is, is this the right thing for the Edmonton? What do they need to do to get things changed there? Because they obviously have the high-end talent, but everything else just seems to be so broken there systemically that it's just such a bad situation for everyone involved. So I'm curious as to what you think about this latest news and, and what should be done in general. I feel like that's a whole podcast topic in itself, really. Yeah, so why don't we do that? Let's start with, we'll leave the Ken Holland part for maybe a little later in the show, and let's talk about what actually needs to change in Edmonton, regardless of who comes in, for them to succeed going forward, because they have the best player on earth, and they should be a successful team, so why don't we hit that? What needs to change no matter who comes in, right? Yep, sounds good to me. So just opening up their cap-friendly page real quick, there are a few contracts you can point to and go, ooh, that's less than ideal. Now, to be fair, you can do that with a lot of teams. I mean, there isn't a team in the league where you you can't find someone on their cap-friendly page that you're thinking, "Mm, maybe this isn't an ideal contract. But I just feel when you look at theirs, there are so many contracts here that are just really bad. Like the Milan-Lucic contract, awful. The Chris Russell contract's pretty painful. Miko Koskinen just signed a $4.5 million contract for the next three years, and I'm not sure if he's an NHL starter. You know, I'm not even sure if he's a quality backup. So it's a weird situation. I'm not sure what the right way to go into fixing it is from a player personnel perspective, but I just feel like the starting point is there are some bad contracts that you'd love to move out if you could. It kind of reminds me of Toronto a few years ago when they had the David Clarkson contract and they had the Dion Phaneuf contract. It's like, okay, you got to get rid of those poison pills first before you do anything, really. Yeah, and I think looking at their cap-friendly page, they only have four no-move clauses on the roster, which objectively is a lot better than most teams because a lot of teams have no-movement clauses everywhere, and that really handicaps you. The problem is... is the three the... players that I brought up all have no-move clauses. <laughs> exactly. It's it's Milan Lucic, Chris Russell, Miko Koskinen, and Andre Sekera all have no-movement clauses. Now, and I probably wouldn't move Andre Sekera. I know I that he had a, an injury that. last year. I feel like that really plagued them defensively. It's hard because their defense core hasn't been healthy for like a full season, I feel like, because Oscar Clefbaum's a really good defenseman. Adam Larson, for all the flack he gets for being a part of the Taylor Hall trade, is a solid defenseman on a good contract. You know, Andre Sekera, when he's healthy, is solid. Darnell Nurse is pretty solid. Chris Russell, you'd like him on a bottom 
pairing. It's just the contract's not ideal. The issue there is that there have been injuries, and then the goaltending's been bad. Special teams has been a bit of a disaster over the last few years, and it just kind of adds up to this mess, especially when you look at their winger depth up front. You'll have Jujar Kaira or Cassian on the first line. It's just the depth offensively is terrible. Injury luck on the blue line's been bad, and the goaltending just hasn't been there since Cam Talbot's miraculous year in 2016-2017. So, I mean, it, I feel like you could just get half-decent goaltending, and that would fix a lot of this. But again, I think teams like uh, Carolina have shown us that it's really hard to rely on that, and I feel like they had five or six years of bad goaltending. They finally got half-decent goaltending this year, and that can quickly turn things around. It's just it's hard to reliably predict whether or not you're going to get that. Yeah, and I agree. I think that there are some things that they need to do. Um, They've got some solid defensive prospects. So maybe, I mean, I would probably keep Oscar Clefbaum, although it depends on what you can get for him, right? Because he's he's got a valuable contract. If he can stay healthy, maybe he's one of those guys that just needs a change of scenery. But when you look at Edmonton's prospects and guys you could potentially step into the lineup next year, just specifically on defense first of all Brandon Manning is probably capable of bottom pair role but you've got Evan Bouchard coming I think that Caleb Jones and Ethan Barrett can both play competent defense and I actually I'm pretty high on Caleb Jones like I think that he could actually be a top four defenseman um, interesting I see him more of a bottom pairing kind of guy but I like mean, a top, anytime you I get think he any- could be like a four or five type like he's not gonna be your power play and or anything like that, but that's what you have Evan Bouchard for. Now, do I think Evan Bouchard is ready next season? We'll have to see in training camp. But if he is ready, then stick him in the lineup on your on your second pairing. He's a right-handed defenseman, so maybe that's somebody that you pair with a Darnell Nurse or um, even an Oscar Clefbaum in a sheltered role because that will allow Bouchard to kind of come along. But I think Edmonton, there is potential for them to get younger on defense. We can get into what their wing looks like. Um, Leon Dreisaitl had a coming out party. Um, I think that with the Oilers pick this year, if Cole Caulfield's there or even a guy like Trevor Zegras, um, they have to take either one of those players. Where is Edmonton picking in the draft? Eighth. Okay. Uh, Cole Caulfield will definitely be there in my opinion, even though maybe he shouldn't be. He's such a great goal scorer. I would imagine that Trevor Zegras should be off the board by then. But he might not be. I feel like he's one of those guys that could slip. This isn't our draft podcast yet. Some people might have no clue who those players are. But I definitely agree that I feel like when you're looking at Edmonton, their forward depth is really lacking. So even if a defenseman might be the best pick available, I could see them going for a forward. But I think we're both well aware that there's really only one defenseman this year that I think is worth going in the top 10. And that's uh, Bowen Byram. Yes, and he probably goes in the top five just because of how weak this depth, this class is when it comes to defensemen in the top ten. So, yeah, they're probably looking at a forward eighth overall, realistically. And I think whether or not, whether it's a Cole Caulfield goal scorer kind of player, a Trevor Zagras more well-rounded player, I feel like that's definitely going to help them out. I think the issue in Edmonton over the last few years has been the way that, not necessarily they draft, but their development of their prospects, whether it's throwing them into the fire or yo-yoing them between the AHL and the NHL like they've done with Jesse Pugliarvi, it just seems like systemically, and I'm not sure if it's the culture of the team or just the mismanagement of assets, but they don't seem to be able to get the most out of their players. And this has just been a, a problem for a long time now. This isn't just one year. This is almost a decade plus 
of mismanaging their assets, mismanaging their young players, and getting to the point where they end up trading players for pennies on the dollar. And I feel like that's what we're going to see with Jesse Pogliarvi this offseason. I could be wrong, but I'm just getting the vibe of he doesn't seem like someone who's going to be an oiler for a long time. So let's say that the Oilers make the decision, or have already made, and maybe with whoever the incoming GM is, it changes, but let's say they've decided they want to get rid of Puyi RV. He's already a diminished asset because of the yo-yoing and now the double hip surgery, which, I mean, for a kid who's, what, 21 years old, not great to be having double hip surgery. Do you maybe potentially tie Puyi RV to one of those contracts? Because, I mean, at this point, he's already a diminished asset, so why don't you use him? Instead of trying to get a lot back, use him to get rid of one of the contracts because you're not going to have a David Clarkson, Nathan Horton scenario again, that just, it doesn't really happen anymore. It was kind of like a one and done thing. We keep saying that, but then it happens once or twice. So I'm wondering if there might be a a scenario out there where they can almost buy some cap space with an LTIR contract. See, and I'm, the more I think about it, like I can't find a player that has that that's uninsured, right? So would you potentially look at strapping Puya Yarvi to a Chris Russell or uh, a Milan Lucic contract? Because I think, this season, Ryan Nugent Hopkins showed that when he has competent wingers, he is a productive, productive player. And same the hard with part Leon is he Dreisaitl. never has productive wingers. <laughs> exactly. Especially when he's the third line center. I think the way to win a championship with this roster is McDavid first line center, Drysaddle second line center, Nugent Hopkins third line center, and you have some solid wingers playing on each of those lines. The problem is that if you're playing those three at center, 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 do they have any top nine wingers on this roster? And right now? Yes. Um, maybe Sam Gagne, and that's maybe. That's about uh, it. And they've got K- Kyler Yamamoto coming in. I think that Yamamoto is going to be a good hockey player, but I don't think he's quite ready yet. Um, I'm a fan of Tyler Benson, but even just kind of looking at their forwards or their draft picks, there is not a lot there. Like, they're... Definitely more on defense that's coming than there is at forward, which is why I'm really never a proponent of drafting for position. But when you look at this draft, there's such an overwhelming number of high skilled forwards available that you have to take one at eight. Like you just have to, unless Bowen Byram falls to you at eight. I can't see it happening. Which I don't see happening. I think you have to take one of those high end forwards. And Cole Caulfield, even though he's small. I mean, so was Alex DeBrincat. Well, guess what? He had like 41 goals this year. And Cole Caulfield just smashed the USA record for goals. He's over a goal per game against his peers. And yes, you know what? Maybe he's playing with Jack Hughes. But guess what? I have news. Connor McDavid, better hockey player than Jack Hughes. That's a hot take. (laughs) Well, it's like, oh, it's not repeatable. Well, I guarantee you if he goes to Edmonton and... If he can play with Jack Hughes, odds are he can play with Connor McDavid too because the IQ level is probably around the same. And Cole Caulfield's shown he can create space for himself. He can shoot the puck from different positions. He can be dangerous in all areas of the ice. He creates space because he demands that attention. So if you potentially draft and develop him, like it doesn't matter who you take at eight. They should not be in your lineup for probably two years. I was about to say, as much as I love Cole Caulfield, he's not someone who's going to help them next year and maybe not even the year afterwards. And if you're taking over as Edmonton GM, you have Connor McDavid on your roster, Leon Dreisaddle. 
even though you're not a huge fan of the defense core, there are some defensemen there that I really like. I mean, I really like Oscar Kleffbaum. I think he's an underrated play driver. Andre Sekera, when healthy, is a top four defenseman. Absolutely. Ad- Adam Larson, I think, is becoming very underrated because of the Taylor Hall trade. The Taylor Hall trade was such a mistake, and I think everyone could see it in the moment. You don't trade a, a top five winger in the NHL, maybe a top ten forward, for a second-pairing defenseman. That's just not ideal, but Adam Larson's a solid defensive defenseman, kills penalties on a very good contract. That's a player you want on your roster. So it's funny. I look at this team, and I see pieces that I really like. And you see Connor McDavid, and you go, yeah, like your team should make the playoffs almost automatically when you have a player that talented. It hasn't been the case for the last two years. Special teams has been an issue. Goaltending has been an issue. Injuries on the back end have been an issue. And winger depth has been arguably the worst in the NHL. So... If you're taking over as GM, what do you do this offseason to put yourself in a solid position to make the playoffs next year? Not guaranteed to make the playoffs, but what do you think gives you the best chance at making the playoffs next season without sacrificing the long-term future? I think you need to move Chris Russell because I think Darnell Nurse (laughs) is capable of playing in that second-pair role, and I don't think that you can have Chris Russell being paid $4 million and being played on in your top four now he's got a no movement clause you'd have to get him to agree to it which I don't know that they're going to be able to but I think if you allow for nurse if you allow your top four to be Sekera, Clefbaum, Larson, and Nurse then you allow a bottom pairing that you can have two young guys or even your bottom two pairings could be a veteran and a young guy and a veteran and a young guy and you just lean heavily on your top pairing and that's something that I think will help because for me watching Ethan Bear and Caleb Jones, they're ready to take the next step. And this is where I think we should probably get into development because I mean, it's no secret that the Oilers have, have definitely rushed some players over the past five to 10 seasons. And so let's say you have the opportunity where Evan Bouchard maybe is good enough, but you don't know if he can do it consistently well, maybe the Oilers look at leaving him down, right? You don't inject a player of that skill level into your lineup unless you're sure he's ready because they've done that and it's shown not to work, right? If I'm not mistaken, I think he can play in the AHL this upcoming season. I believe he can, yes, because because of of his his birth date. Yeah, and it's always confusing with those guys who were born after, what is it, after August, or no, September 15th is the cutoff day. So if you're born after September 15th, but before December 31st, you end up in this weird window where you can actually play in the AHL as a 19-year-old, and then you turn 20 just as you enter the AHL. It's very confusing. I know Travis Dermott did it, a bunch of other players have done it. And Evan Bouchard, because of his birthday, I'm pretty sure he falls into that uh, date range. Born on October 20th, 1999, yep. So he fits that date range. So I'd, I'd put Evan Bouchard in the AHL, you know, see how he does there because he's an excellent offensive player. The, the, the struggle with him is his skating, obviously. But Right, and that's where I think you have the development coaches that are consistently working to improve that. So you have either a Don Braid who works, I believe, with Arizona. You have a Barb Underhill who works with the Leafs. The Oilers can afford a skating coach, and I don't want to hear that they can't. Because... I was going to say, private private skating lessons over the offseason. She's an independent contractor. You can hire a Barb Underhill. Exactly. So I think that if Bouchard can improve his skating, I think that half a year in the AHL at least will do him well, if not a full season. Because again, you do not want to rush these players. You already have 
some defensive prospects that are coming. And to be fair, Sekera, Clefbaum, Nurse, and Larson, competent top four right now. Like, you yeah. can deal with that. There are worse defense cores still alive in the playoffs right now. Exactly. And so I think that what needs to be done to make the playoffs next year has almost nothing to do with defense. They need to get someone to help McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Nugent Hopkins because what's going to end up happening is the coach is going to end up playing Dreisaitl with Connor and then you put Nugent Hopkins, he slots into the second line role and then he's getting the different matchup. And then your third line's garbage, your fourth line's garbage, you're playing your top six like 20 plus minutes a night every night. That's that's not what you want to do over an 82 game season. Now, I think Connor McDavid is one of those exceptions where he should be playing 22 minutes a night. Oh, and yeah, man. Then you I mean, do... they had him going like 25 plus in a lot of games. Exactly. So let's say Connor plays 22 minutes a night on average. Okay, well now you have 38 minutes where you need to figure out what the rest of the team is doing. If I'm Edmonton and you look at these contracts, I'm telling McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Nugent Hopkins, sorry, none of you are playing on a line together on a consistent basis. If we need to load up because we're down a goal, then I'll put McDavid and Dreisaitl out there together. But on the whole, we want these three guys playing probably... 50 to 52 minutes of the 60 minutes. The hard part there is, and I completely agree with you, long-term success, that's what you need. You need McDavid on your first line, Dreisaitl on your second line, and then Nugent Hopkins will be one of the best third-line centers in the NHL. That's kind of what the Leafs have done with their center depth. Tampa Bay has done it with their center depth. If you can have that elite center depth down the middle, it's really hard for teams to match up with. The problem is that of the six wingers you need for your top three lines there, the Oilers need six. <laughs> yeah, like I think that the Toby Reader comments were probably a little unfair, and I actually think he could be a competent third line winger. Um, he's got some skill; he can penalty kill. Sam Gagne, again, you could use him on the power play. There's your fourth forward on the power play, so you roll with McDavid, Nugent Hopkins, Drysidle, and probably Gagne, and then you have whoever you want at the point, and that would be one of the power play units where I'm like, well, you're out there for two minutes, and I don't want to see you until there's 15 or 20 seconds left on the power play. Because Especially on a team it. like Edmonton where you're so top-heavy and your depth just isn't there. You don't have a second unit that's going to be able to do any damage. So next year, I mean, they've got Ryan McLeod. He's nowhere near being ready yet. Um, do You, you pre- don't think so? You couldn't see him playing a bottom six role in the NHL? Absolutely not. He needs not just for on-ice, for off-ice reasons. Oh, see, I'm I'm not privy to any of that. Just as a as a Mississauga boy who's been around those guys for a while, I I feel like he's like the perfect bottom six center in that he's fast, he's big, he can win puck battles, he can PK. I don't think he's ever going to be a, a big time scorer, but I just I've always liked his game. But he has been, uh, what's the right word? A bit underwhelming uh, since joining Saginaw this year in the OHL. So he could probably use a, at least a year or two in the cool. AHL to round out his game. So I think that. Edmonton's got their top three centers. Those things are set in stone. They're not going anywhere. Having a speed. At least they shouldn't. I wouldn't trade Nugent Hopkins. I know that's on the table. I feel like that's your strength. If you're going to win a cup, I feel like you need to lean into your strength. Exactly. And so with Ryan McLeod, I could actually see him playing on the wing. And if that's the case, he's not like I've watched him a lot. He's not ready yet. And that's not to say that he doesn't have a good summer. But again, we talk about. Do not rush your players. Give McLeod a year in the AHL. See what happens. 
and then take it from there. But I think McLeod's actually I think actually Yamamoto will be ready for next year. What do you think on that one? I think Yamamoto should get a shot right out of training camp. And, I mean, what do you have to lose at this point? Put him on McDavid's wing and see what happens. And strap him there. for and, like Try it for an actual sample size. Give him 10 games on McDavid's wing and say, every time McDavid's going out, so are you. And see what happens because they're not going to have instant chemistry. This is not the Sedins, right? So I think that Yamamoto will be ready and I think he should get a shot. And so for me, having someone just back to Ryan McLeod that, you know what, I, I actually think that McLeod would be served as a great penalty killing winger on this team who can take faceoffs, right? So if you get caught out there, you've got two guys that can take a draw or you've got a guy if you're caught at a position that um, he can play and fill that center role. So I think that with that being said, you still don't want to rush him, but the only forward that I see really coming up next year from the uh, from Bakersfield is, is Yamamoto because I do think that the Oilers, it's been, I want to say, three years now since his draft year. Um, he's played well. I thought he played well last year um, for good stretches, and so give give the kid a look because... I mean, he's, I would say he's, he's earned it. What are your thoughts on someone like Tyler Benson? And I know we're just getting really deep into Edmonton's prospect pool here. I think the bigger question overall is what's your approach heading to this offseason? Do you think you have to aggressively pursue players through trade? I know Connor Brown is someone they look to add at the deadline. I think it's interesting looking at a team like Vegas, who is able to acquire guys like Eric Halla or Alex Tuck or little under the radar kind of players propel them into a bigger role and then see how they performed. I know Vancouver traded for Josh Levo this past year, played him in their top six, and he's produced at over a 20 goal rate. I feel like there are players out there that haven't been given opportunities, whether it's guys in the NHL or guys who have been performing well in the AHL and haven't been called up. I feel like they could aggressively pursue the trade market this offseason to see what's out there. Maybe look for some under-the-radar signings, some guys who are on like uh, a PTO, like the you know the PA Parentos of the world, or I think Tyler Ennis signed one this year for the Leafs. I feel like you got to acquire a bunch of those kinds of players because, in theory, complementary wingers should be the easiest part of your roster to add, and it's basically what Edmonton's missing. We're pretty high on their defense core relative to most people. We love their center depth, and goaltending tends to be a bit of voodoo. It's really hard to predict that moving forward. But if, if you can just bring in a few complimentary wingers, I know Jonathan Willis wrote an article a few months ago saying, I think this situation in Edmonton is a lot easier to turn around than a lot of people think. And I tend to agree because I, I think their biggest... Well. I think their biggest problem is the easiest asset in the NHL to add, and that's a complimentary winger. So I'll be interested to see what they actually do this offseason, but I think they should aggressively pursue the trade market and really go after some of those under-the-radar free agents, you know, those one-year deals for like $1 million, a PTO. I feel like you bring in a bunch of those guys, all of a sudden you could have some half-decent winger depth. So I think that, um, and it's just because they come to the top of my head, and it's probably because the media doesn't shut up about them, and there are four players that come to mind, and they all play for the same team. Uh, Connor Brown would be one. Now he's under contract. I think he gets traded by Toronto anyways. Tyler Ennis is an Edmonton boy. He's had a terrific year with the Leafs, and he definitely deserves to be playing more than fourth-line minutes. Now, does he want to stay in Toronto because of how he's treated here, or does he potentially want to lock something down more long-term? But if I'm Edmonton, that's definitely somebody that I'm calling because he's more than shown that he can be a competent winger. Um, 
And I look at Edmonton in 2020 and 2021. They've got all their picks except their 2020 seventh round pick. I'm looking at an offer sheet because... Do you have the cap space to pull that off, though? That's the issue. Well, here's the thing. There are a few... I'm not talking about an offer sheet for a star player. I'm talking about an offer sheet for a player like Andreas Janssen. Or Kasperi Kapanen. In that, and you're talking that $4 million range, because if it's under $4.1 million, you could sign them to a four-year, $4 million contract, and it would only cost you a second-round pick. Right. And that would be beautiful asset management. I think that you could get Andreas Janssen for less than that. Like, I really do, because, well, he's got arbitration rights. But I think that he kind of dipped towards the end of the year, and he's really only had one season where, I mean, he was playing with Austin Matthews a lot of it. Whereas I think that Kasperi Kapan is is probably more sustainable and he, he plays on the penalty kill, which is why I think he'll be a little bit more expensive. But if I'm Edmonton, Tyler Ennis is definitely someone I'm going after. I'm also calling Toronto about Connor Brown. Um, I'm looking at Curtis McElhaney in Carolina and what he's doing currently goaltending-wise because, yes, Koskinen's on a not-great contract, but if you look at a lot of the teams that are succeeding, they're platooning two goalies and right now Edmonton only has one and it's Koskinen so if they can get a Curtis McElhinney or a Peter Mrazek or someone to play that role I love how the solution to their problems is Curtis McElhinney I know but even like look at how he's playing like it's it's pretty hard to to argue and even if it's not even if he's not as good as he was this season he's not going to be worse than what they had last year. I've heard an interesting theory on goaltending, and I'm curious if you agree or not. Um, It's so hard to predict from season to season that I've heard the argument that it's better to just have two guys that are pretty good because then one of them is likely to have a solid year and you can ride him for a few more games. Whereas if you have a bonafide starter and he has a bit of a down year, all of a sudden you're screwed because you don't have that reliable backup to go to. And that's kind of what we saw with, well, I mean, the Islanders just had two star goalies this year. They both decided to go off. Buffalo had two goalies. One of them was playing better than the other, so they gave him more starts. You know, where's was, where was another uh, scenario where, where they were splitting goaltenders? In Calgary, you had Mike Smith. Rask and Halak in Boston. That's another great example. In, in Calgary, Mike Smith started off the year pretty rough, so they went with Dave Riddich. Then Dave Riddich started to struggle down the stretch, and they went back to Mike Smith when he was heating up again. And I feel like that's a perfect example of, yeah, you have two guys that you don't have complete faith in, but if they're both pretty decent goalies, you can ride one of them when he's hot, the other when he's not, and then you can make it work. I'm curious... If you'd rather have two decent goalies or one very good goalie and a complete crap backup? See, for me, um, if my if you could give me, okay, you get to have one really good goalie, I'm picking one of, like, Carey Price or Andre Vasilevsky. Otherwise, I want two goalies that can give me either 50-30 or 40-40 in the same way that Rask and Halak did this year because I think that that worked out really, really well for Boston. Um, which is kind of why I'm interested to see what happens with Bobrovsky. Does he stay in Columbus or not? So I think Edmonton's best option kind of going forward, they've got Koskinen at four and a half next year. If they can get a goaltender at under two and a half, then you're getting your goaltending for $7 million. And that's doable. Like it's, it's manageable if you're going 40-40. It's not ideal that you're paying Koskinen four and a half million dollars. But if you can get a goaltender that can at least split time with them and give you competent goaltending, essentially give you a chance to win every night, that could go a long way for Edmonton because 
If you're getting a stop and you've got 97 going the other way, I'll take my chances with that. So what goaltenders are we talking about? Because we're obviously not talking about Bobrovsky, who's all but already signed in, in Florida. That's like the, the worst kept secret in the NHL. We're talking about guys, I guess, in that mid-tier range. So I don't know if Ryan Miller's coming back for another season. Uh, you have Anders Nilsson's, uh, his contract's up at the end of this year, Michael Neuvert. Uh, I don't know, Brian Elliott's someone you can depend on. There are guys, Petter Morazic's up at the end of this year. That's somebody I go after. Um, Michael Hutchinson, Keith Kincaid. Uh, the, the names aren't that great for guys that are available this offseason. I would say that um, I would go after Peter Morazic. I would definitely go after Keith Kincaid. Um, Anthony Stolarz. No, no. I mean, Stolarz is already on your team. <laughs> um, I think with Kincaid and Morazic, that's probably two that I look at just because you know Keith is capable. You Well, actually, you know both are capable of going on a run. You saw what Keith did last year in New Jersey. I mean, that was fun. Where, where the hell did that come from? And then you see what Mrazek's doing this year. I think that you could probably get Kincaid for cheaper um, than you could get Mrazek, mainly because one goalie has carried his team to the conference finals, um, except for maybe two or three games. So those are two options that I strongly look at if I'm Edmonton. Stolarz did not work out for them last year. And both of those guys that I mentioned have a track record of they can at least play a few games and give you a chance to win. All right. So it sounds like we're both a bit higher on Edmonton's ability to turn things around, at least to the to the point where they're literally competing for the playoffs, you know, and in April or late March, they're still in the playoff hunt realistically. I think if we wanted to do, uh, you know, an autopsy on what went wrong here, I think we can all point to, yeah, the Taylor Hall trade that was didn't make any sense. Trading Jordan Eberle for pennies on the dollar didn't really make sense. If we could go back in time and not give Miko Koskinen that contract so that we actually had some cap flexibility to do something else in net, I think we'd gladly take that choice, you know? If we had the, the option to not give Lucic the Lucic contract and Russell the Russell contract and instead maybe go after someone like Jason Demers that offseason, you know, and, and he solves our defensive issues and that we hold on to Taylor Hall, I think that all makes sense. But I feel like the, the, the bigger, deeper issue here is what we talked about is that just not maximizing your assets, not maximizing your draft picks and the development of everything. It feels like organizationally, there's, it's just a not well-run team. So I'm wondering if you think bringing in someone like Holland will help in that regard, because I tend to be, I don't know what the right word is, much more pessimistic on what he's done over the last five to ten years than most people. But I understand the argument that, you know, when Lou Lamorello came to Toronto, even though you might not have liked some of the decisions he made, and, you know, the, the Marlowe contract and the Zaitsev contract are still hurting the team, but he helped from a culture perspective. I know that's something that stats people hate to hear about, but when you look at Edmonton, there's a culture problem, man. Like, behind the speeds in particular. Here's what I say. It was well documented, and obviously four years ago, I was still firmly in love with the blue and white. And um, there was this thing. It's There's either the Muskoka 5 or it's blue and white disease. Brian Burke talks about it all the time. It existed. It was a thing. When Lou Lamorello came in uh, and Brendan Shanahan came in, and kudos to Shanahan because I think a lot of it is owed to him, there is no blue and white disease anymore and it was rampant so what does blue and white disease mean for people who, who don't know it means it's basically entitlement it's this really toxic culture where it's i'm entitled to being a maple leaf and 
um, oh, it's not that great here, and I don't really have to work hard because I am a Maple Leaf, and I'm big, bad, and bold in this city, and, and so it's just this, like, it's the entitlement factor, and there's kind of, there's garbage going on in the front office, there's crap going on in ownership, and it filters down into the players, because if they realize that it's a absolute disaster upstairs, then what am I here playing for? So it, it kind of like bred itself really, really badly. And when Shanahan and Lou and Babcock came in, they wiped that right out. Like Lou wiped it right out. And so I think that having somebody like Ken Holland, who has, you can agree and disagree with decisions he's made on ice, but the program that he's got in Detroit in terms of what it means to be a Red Wing and obviously the Illich family has a lot to do with this as well, is something I think he can really help with in Edmonton because he can go in there and sort of do what Shanahan and Lou did in Toronto, which was the blue and orange disease that exists in Edmonton. Ken Holland has the clout to tell Daryl Cates, just stop for a second and let me handle this because I don't think Ken Holland would take the job if he didn't have autonomy. And I think that's a big factor because I think the issue there is that it's a lot of former Oilers, it's a bunch of yes-men, and it just leads to circular decision-making, and it it obviously is part of the reason they've been so bad do you remember so the day? Do you remember the day that Shanahan cleaned out like over 90% of the scouts and in I think he, he fired uh, Poulin, and uh, they hired uh, Dubis on the same day. It was, it was a great week. It was, it was a lot of fun. And then they cleaned out all of the scouts. And so I think that Holland going in there, if he's got full autonomy, has the kind of clout where he could just do what Shanahan did and clean out everything, get all new blood in, get new ideas in. So here's the hard part where I agree that that would be the right thing to do. Based on his tenure in Detroit, I'm not sure if the voices that he would bring in would be significantly better than the ones that are currently there in Edmonton. See, I think bringing in somebody like Sean Burke would be really so you bring in Ken Holland but then you bring in someone like Sean Burke who has kind of a new line of thinking he is newer blood he's a goaltender so that definitely helps I don't know how that helps um, the goalies are the worst says a former goalie I know I think that they bring a different perspective and yeah you're a former goalie my dad's a former goalie you're all weird but I think that having somebody like Sean Burke who has apprenticed and he wasn't a superstar in this league and so he did kind of have to ply his trade and having somebody with new ideas is never a bad idea. So I think from a culture perspective, the Holland hiring, if it happens, will be good for the Oilers because I think he will do somewhat similar to what Lou did in Toronto, and that's wipe out the blue and orange disease. So you could potentially see players that we don't think necessarily the Oilers would trade but Holland believes they have blue and orange disease, and therefore you have to go. Now here's the counter-argument. The biggest problem with Edmonton is their contract situation. There's one team that has a cap-friendly page that I think is worse than Edmonton, and all these contracts were signed by Ken Holland. And I th- <laughs> uh, There was a great tweet by Down Goes Brown, and it said, uh, Ken Holland likely to sign a five-year deal of $5 million. And he tweeted that this will be the the shortest contract that Ken Holland signed in the last decade. (laughs) (laughs) That's objectively funny. But I think that that's what I'm saying is it it really depends on who Holland brings in. Because if Holland comes in and just focuses on the off-ice stuff and... And it's like, man, we really need to give Jujar Kyra a six-year contract. You know, he's a hard worker. Yeah, no, we don't. And he brings in someone who is really good with the cap 
or um, has a good understanding of asset management to sort of assist him and help him, which is why I think somebody like Sean Burke. But why didn't he do that in Detroit when that was clearly an issue? See, I don't have the answer for that, but I think that Ken Holland has octopus arms all over the league when you look at who he has sort of mentored into becoming successful general managers. Jim Nill in Dallas, Steve Eiserman, ironically the man who is replacing him, you could argue is probably the NHL's best general manager in terms of I would definitely make that body argument. of work. So I think that Ken Holland definitely has mentored guys. So he he's a good leader. And uh, right now what Edmonton needs is a good leader because that seems to be an issue there. And so I think it'll be more on Holland to bring in new mindsets to help with things like asset management and the cap. So it all depends on who he brings in. And I'm not going to make my judgment or pass judgment on his decisions until I see sort of what he does, because I think that if he's taking this job, he's getting full autonomy and there's definitely going to be some people that he wants to bring in. See, I hear where you're coming from and I totally understand it. But at the same time, I feel like actions speak louder than words. And if you look at his body of work, basically since Nick Lidstrom retired, I think it's a lot of very poor decisions and ones that were very obvious at the time. You know, whether it was the Franz Nielsen contract, the Justin Ablocator contract, the Darren Helm contract, the Luke Glendening contract, the Danny DeKaiser contract, the Jonathan Erickson contract, giving Trevor Daly a, a long-term contract and a no-trade clause. I mean, I could just, I could go on here. The Stephen Weiss contract. A lot of them were very obviously poor decisions at the time and looked even worse in hindsight. I'm not sure if I'd trust a general manager with that track record to dig Edmonton out of the salary cap hell they're in right now. So that would be my biggest concern and why I would have rather gone with someone who I see as more of a progressive, you know, modern thinker of the game as opposed to someone who would be in the, you know, quote unquote, 200 hockey men. Because I feel like that's kind of what's plagued them over the last little bit. It's literally 200 hockey men who played for the Edmonton Oilers in the 80s who basically run that front office and... I feel like we have the same idea when it comes to, yeah, if Ken Holland could come in, clean house, and bring in new ideas, bring in forward-thinking people, I think that would be a, a great way of doing things. I just don't think that's how he ran things in Detroit based on his body of work. So that would be my biggest concern moving forward. I hope you're right because I want to see Connor McDavid in the playoffs. It's awful that we don't get to see some of the best players. Let's back up and say, other than Holland, who would you bring in that's currently available? And if they hire Holland... Who are bodies that you think Ken Holland should bring in to help him in his rebuild of not only Edmonton on ice, but Edmonton off ice? It's a really good point. Quick question. Um, Ken Holland's your GM for fun, let's say, or maybe he isn't. Which coach are you going after right now? Which coach will he go after or which coach should he go after? Well, I'm curious as to what you think for both. I would not be shocked if he asked for permission to speak to Mike Babcock just because of the Hockey Canada connection. And with with the way that all the whispers have been happening behind the scenes right now, that could be a very interesting situation over the next month. Exactly. I just think it would be maximum chaos, and I think it would be fun. Although, I think the coach that I probably would be going after would be either Dallas Eakins, again, or Sheldon Keith. Or you keep Ken Hitchcock. See, with Dallas Eakins, I feel like he would... I, I'd love to go after Dallas Eakins if I'm another team. But if I'm Edmonton, or if I even if I'm Dallas Eakins, do I really want another crack at the Edmonton job? Yeah, probably not. But I think... Here's the thing. I, Hitchcock is... Like, that's a good coach. Maybe you keep... Maybe you keep him, or... Maybe you go after Dave Tippett. 
I mean, Connor McDavid, as bad as the situation is in Edmonton right now, Connor McDavid is really enticing. It And, I mean, I'm going to bring up Sheldon Keefe. I feel like I've heard Buffalo is interested in Sheldon Keefe, and I think that's... There's no that... chance Toronto allows that to happen. We'll see what happens. I'm curious. But uh, with, with Buffalo, Sheldon Keefe's definitely a guy I'd go after. I'm not sure if Edmonton's the right coach for Sheldon Keefe, and... It's interesting because I feel like they're very different situations. You know, like Buffalo, like they're growing. They've got a lot of young players. They're trying to move things forward. Edmonton was just kind of such a disaster over the last two seasons. I'm not sure if that's the right place you want to go to to start off your NHL career if you're Sheldon Keith. But then again, there are only 31 jobs available, you know, and if someone comes ringing, you're probably going to want to answer that call. Um, the Swedish coach that we talked about on the last podcast, I want to make sure I pronounce it right. Ricard Gronberg. Yes. I was just want to make sure. I'm like, Ricard? Okay, Ricard Gronberg. I'd go after him. You know, I, I go after smart people. I go after modern thinkers. I go after people who have new ideas and fun ideas. And for a guy who is able to get his team to move up the, up the ice with possession, like Gromberg does or like Sheldon Keefe does, imagine what they could do with a Connor McDavid on their roster. You know, I feel like it would just be so much fun to watch. Exactly. But I'm talking front office. Who are new-minded people that you would bring in? Let's remove the coach for a second. Who are Who are people you would bring in to sort of augment the Holland hiring whether they're employed by an NHL team right now or not I mean obviously you're not going to take a current GM from an NHL team or probably even an assistant GM so who are people that you would kind of look to bring in that's a really good question that I don't have a great answer for off the top of my head that's why I kind of said Sean Burke right because he's sort of kind of been in the weeds and you know what somebody that I think they should probably look at bringing in is Ron Hextall because look at what he did in Philly also how about Ron Francis him too he built that team in Carolina other than basically adding Nino Niederreiter that's basically the team that he built and they're about to go to the conference finals they might go to the NHL Stanley Cup finals they might win the goddamn cup this year and look at and their he cap built that friendly. team and they're 16 million dollars under the cap yeah look at that cap friendly look at those defensive contracts they are gold Jacob Slavin's making 5.3 million dollars and I think he's a top 10 defenseman in the NHL Brett Pesci is making $4 million. I think he's a top 30 defenseman in the NHL. Uh, Tivu Tiravainen is making $5.4 million in the next few years. I think he's a first-line winger. You know, like, just so many great contracts on this team. So. Right. And they're going to have to pay Ajo. Like, let's not get away from this. Eh, well, they're I mean, you got to pay your superstars. He's, he's their franchise player, basically. you got to pay your superstars. But, but look, at they can pay him because they're only at 70-some-odd million dollars on the cap. 63. $63 oh million. Dollars. Even better. It's unbelievable the position that both Ron Francis and Ron Hextall have left their teams in, and they're both unemployed right now. And I feel like Ron Hextall never got a fair shake because I feel like people don't realize the situation he came into in Philadelphia. It was a complete disaster salary cap-wise. Oh my god, it was awful. And so I think that bringing those two in, what if you could have them as even assisted GMs if they're willing could you imagine the damage that those two could do together? I was going to say, if I'm trying to dig myself out of salary cap hell, Ron Hextall's got to be near the top of my list, right? I was kind of shocked that they didn't actually give him a formal interview for the GM job because of what he did in Philadelphia. So if we're going to assume that Ken Holland's your go-to, I'm not sure if you can get Ron Hextall to come in and be an assistant GM. You know, I'm not sure if you can get Ron Francis to come in and be assistant GM. Those might be... Uh, people who are waiting for a position of power, you know, a GM or a president of hockey operations job to open up. But if you can get someone like that to come in, I feel like I'd be, I, those are two guys I would definitely be interested in. 
or I'd look to the lower levels. You know, I'd look to whether it's junior or maybe the AHL or maybe even overseas. And I look at to see who's who's doing some cool, progressive, forward-thinking things when it comes to the way that they're evaluating players, the way that they are going about and using different play styles to take advantage of their team. You know, some some teams obviously run the same systems no matter what, but if if you have a team that's doing some very unique stuff and they have talent that isn't necessarily aligned with what the rest of their league has, I'm always interested in people who are trying to take advantage of market inefficiencies in their particular league. So I definitely look into the AHL, I definitely look into the OHL, I'd look into overseas. I know we were just talking about Gronberg as a potential coach. Why not look towards a very successful, you know, SHL team or a successful Liga team, a successful KHL team and see if I can get some new ideas from people like that. So I feel like you can never have too many good ideas in the room. So I, I'd just be looking into bringing as many progressive, modern thinkers of the game as I could. Well, yeah, and I was I was almost just thinking, like, what if you gave Holland president of hockey operations? Because Bob Nicholson is the president of the team. What if you gave Ken Holland president of hockey operations and you bring in a body like Ron Hextall as your GM, but... It's basically on the understanding of like George McPhee, Kelly McCurman, where you're going to work together type of deal. What if I bought Eric Tulski from Carolina Hurricanes and just made him my assistant GM? I, well, it's funny and um, probably a pretty good segue. Uh, one of Jason Botchford's last tweets was that the Edmonton Oilers should be looking to hire the next Tulski. And man, oh man, is that spot on because... Look at the things that Tulski is doing in Carolina, and could Edmonton not use some of that? Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, but I think that's a, a good transition into uh, the passing of Jason Botchford, which I, I don't even know how to segue into it. It's just awful. He was, I think he's 48 years old, passed away with a heart attack, and it's just... I know a lot of people who are very close to Jason Botchford. Unfortunately, I never got the chance to meet him face-to-face, but... He was a big influence on the type of writing that I wanted to do when it came to using the analytics, but also trying to explain it in a way that everyone could understand and treating people with respect, but also writing in a fun and interesting way that people want to write with. And I've talked to so many people in Vancouver, whether it's, you know, Harmon Dial, you know, the the Canucks Army guys, and apparently, like, Jason Botcher was just the kind of guy who would go out of his way to make you feel better. And if you needed a kick in the ass, he'd give you a kick in the ass. But if you needed an embrace and a hug and someone to tell you, hey, don't worry, like, go get him next time, he'd do that for you. And I think he's, he's a big part of the reason that a lot of the, uh, the Vancouver blogosphere has is, <laughs> is made it to the, where they are right now. He's been such a, a, a key piece of the Vancouver media. And how many mainstream media are very progressive when it comes to analytics you know not very many of them and Jason Botcher was one of the first to really latch onto it and it's it's heartbreaking it's terrible I don't know what else to say he made a huge impact in the Vancouver hockey media market he had a huge influence on a lot of the writers that I love and, and respect and he had a huge influence on me and my writing style so I don't know what else to say other than he's one of my favorite writers of all time and he'll be sorely missed not just for the writer he was but for the person he was yeah, and, and you said it beautifully. I mean, losing somebody at 48 years old is tragic. It's awful. I feel terrible for his family. And one of the things I really, really appreciated about Botchbird before I ever met him, and I only met him once, was whether I was watching That's Hockey on TSN or I was reading his stuff, whether it was The Province or The Athletic, 
He was one of the only writers in a country where water carrying is rampant among media. Especially out west. Especially out west. He made no bones about it. If the team was doing something stupid, he called them out on it. If the team was doing something progressive, he pointed to it. He was very, very transparent and direct with his writing and the way he reported on the team. And that was not on display better than when he brought up what Joe Thornton said in the dressing room that one day where Thomas Hurdle scored four goals. It's just one of those things where you could always count on Botchford for very in-depth, transparent, direct analysis of what happened. And it's refreshing because it doesn't happen that often in Canadian media, to be quite honest. And honestly, Canadian hockey writing, or just hockey writing in general, I feel like when you compare it to whether it's basketball writing or writing on other types of sports, I feel like we're very far behind when it comes to our level of analysis. And his support of the Canucks Army and of people who think progressively. I remember when Vancouver came to New Jersey and I was in New Jersey. Um, My one thing was, I was sitting in the press box like, I want to meet Jason Botchford. I've watched this guy since I was a kid and really looked up to him, his writing style, the way he looks at things, how open he is to new ideas and incorporating new things. And I think that he's had an impact on more people in this industry than um, maybe everyone knew. And now it's all kind of coming out. But at the end of the day, I mean, the world and especially the hockey world lost a really really good guy and I know that everyone out in Vancouver and everyone at the athletics hurting and but definitely like thoughts are with his family because it's absolutely tragic that kids have to grow up without their father so I guess pour one out for Jason Botchford just again one of my favorite writers and helped pave the way for more people like me when it comes to people who had maybe some newer ideas that they were really looking to put out in the in the public sphere Jason Botch was one of the first who helped latch onto that idea and make it a bit more popular among mainstream media. So we, we, lost, a, we lost a great writer. We lost a, a great developer of talent. We, we lost a great friend to a lot of people. So, And to that, we will say thank you to Jason Botchford for all of what he's done for the community, whether hockey or otherwise. And, well, that'll be it for this week, and we'll talk to you guys next week hopefully on a much happier note thank you so much for listening really appreciate it we'll have a new topic next week and if you want to send out a mailbag question sorry we didn't have enough time for the mailbag this week we got a bit carried away with our edmonton talk and then obviously had to touch on something much more important with uh, the jason botchford uh, news unfortunately but send us your questions for next week and we'll answer them in the mailbag and thank you so much for listening really appreciate it We'll be back next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. <laughs>